This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More than a million Coloradans have already voted in this year's election, and with a million ballots come a million questions. Okay, maybe not quite that many, but we have been hearing from concerned voters through Colorado Wonders. And here with some answers to these questions is our resident elections know-it-all, Editor Megan Verlee. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. Here's our first question. It's from Jared Scott of Hesperus, Colorado, which I learned is near Durango. And I had a question about the postage required for mailing in my ballot this year. I did not know that the postage was going to cost more than one stamp before I sent in my ballot. And I was wondering if my ballot will get delivered anyway. Okay, so uh, in answer to Jared's question, I'm going to actually start with a unrelated public service announcement or maybe a related one, which is that it is too late to mail in your ballot. Do not do it. It will not get there in time. It will not be counted. Don't do it. There are lots and lots and lots of drop boxes all over the state out there, and you can put your ballot in those at this point. Uh, and if you don't know where one is in your county, just go to GoVoteColorado.com and you'll find them. So don't mail your ballot, no matter how much postage you put drop on it. Drop it off. Okay. Exactly. But if you did send in your ballot and, like Jared, you only slapped a single stamp on it, uh, the quick answer is yes. The Postal Service does not like to publicize this for obvious reasons, but it is not going to disenfranchise you over a couple of stamps. So the post- Postal Service just delivers ballots out of, what, a sense of civic duty in these cases? Not exactly. They deliver the ballots, uh, but then they charge your county clerk's office uh, for any underpaid postage. So it's not a freebie. Okay, you're either paying for the stamp or with your tax dollars. Exactly. I suppose. On to question two. Hi, this is Annabeth from Denver. What I wonder is when do we count ballots in Colorado? If a person submits their ballot during early voting, are they counted before Election Day? If they are counted early, how do they keep the results secret? Or if they do not count them early, how do we count them so fast that we get accurate results on Election Eve? So this is kind of a cool system. They are counted early, but they are not tallied up. Not tally. What's the difference there? Help us understand that. So ever since people started returning their ballots uh, last month, workers in the clerk's offices have been opening up those envelopes, verifying the signatures, and then running the ballots through the tabulating machines. Those machines scan the ballots. They record how each person voted. But they don't automatically add everything up. That won't happen until after the polls close when somebody hits tabulate. And that's how you get those giant batches of returns right after 7 o'clock on election night. Interesting. They have to sort of press a button. Exactly. And that is also why everyone involved in this always begs voters to return their ballots as early as possible so they can have as many as possible scanned in in advance. And they're, you know, we're not up till midnight on election night still scanning tons and tons of ballots. In other words, uh, get your ballots in now so clerks and candidates and journalists and highly interested voters can get some sleep. Exactly. Definitely journalists. Now, you uh, have mentioned that part of the process is signature verification. Mm -hmm. And we got a question about that as well. Heidi Wicks asks, how closely are signatures on ballots compared to voter signature cards? My signature has changed drastically since I was 18. Should I worry? 
And Megan, I'm really glad she asked this because I changed up my signature not too long ago and I wondered the same thing. Well, I guess you and Heidi maybe should worry, depending on the last time you signed an official document, like a a driver's license form, Uh, because ballot signatures are compared against whatever else the state has on file for your signature, uh, which is usually, I think, probably what's in your DMV file. So yes, if your John Hancock has changed dramatically, uh, they are going to pull your ballot and flag it for, you know, further checking. Uh, I understand that this has actually affected the secretary of state. He loves this anecdote. Wayne Williams' daughter, several years back, I guess her signature had changed a lot and her ballot got pulled. So when he gets questions about whether the signature verification system really works, he actually points to his daughter. Okay, but it's not that your ballot is outright dismissed. There just may be some questions in the wake. Exactly. You should get like a postcard or some other kind of contact from your county clerk giving you the opportunity to come in and validate your signature and then your ballot gets counted. Which naturally leads to the question question of how I know my ballot has been counted. Is there any way to track that? Well, Colorado actually, uh, counties have been really proactive about this. So another public service announcement here. If you are worried about anything happening to your ballot after you return it that might keep it from getting counted, you can go to GoVoteColorado.com and check and see if your ballot has been accepted. Uh, and then a lot of counties also use individual ballot uh, tracking. So I, I get text alerts on my phone from the Denver clerk telling me about my ballot every step of the process. I tried out the GoVoteColorado.com method and uh, entered my name, zip code, birthday, and voila, it said my ballot was, quote, accepted and will be counted. So somebody's got to still hit tabulate. That's right. Uh, Well, thanks for going through all of this, uh, Megan. And I I just want to make time for a shameless plug that you and I will be back together in this studio Tuesday night for CPR special election coverage, election night in Colorado. Exactly. And I believe this is the first time that Colorado Public Radio has done wall-to-wall coverage of uh, Colorado results after the polls close. So from 7 to 9, we will have reporters calling in from the Republican and Democratic headquarters. We'll be tracking the ballot measures. And we'll have some analysts uh, here in the studio to give us some insightful uh looks into what's happening out there. And this all actually starts at 6 o'clock with uh, national NPR special coverage. And throughout our Colorado public radio coverage, we'll have national results as well with Ken Rudin, who's long been known as public radio's political junkie. Megan Verley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. She edits CPR's political coverage and a lot more. The largest attack on Jews in U.S. history last weekend in Pittsburgh has given extra meaning to a prayer that Jews around the world recite regularly. It's a prayer for the dead. Ahead of Friday night Shabbat services, we asked a Denver rabbi to tell us about this prayer. My name is Rachel Kobrin, and I am the rabbi at Rodef Shalom here in Denver, Colorado. Yitzgadal v'yitzgadash shemei rabah. The Mourner's Kaddish is a prayer that is said when people are in mourning. We also say this prayer for those that we remember who, who have died and who we are holding close. The prayer is actually an affirmation of life because it reminds us that even in our darkest days that we will move on into light again. Le'ela min ko birchata 
It's kind of like a virtual hug. It's like people who are who are missing their loved ones saying, you are not alone. We are here to stand by you, and we will stand by you each and every day as you move back into the world and grasp onto life again. We will help you do that, and we do that together. We wanted to hear from this particular Denver synagogue, Rudolf Shalom, because like Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, they practice conservative Judaism. Rabbi Kobrin says it's a bit of a misnomer. The movement was a response to the reformers who reformed Judaism. And the conservative movement really came out of that as a way of saying, although we want to be more liberal and we want to see Jewish law in a different way than our traditional counterparts, we also don't want to reform it quite as much as you've reformed it. And so they came up with the name conservative because they were conserving Judaism, conserving traditional Judaism in light of the fact that the world is evolving. The movement's actually quite progressive on issues of women in the rabbinate, clearly I'm a woman and I'm a rabbi, on LGBT issues and on other sort of modern social issues. Uh, yet we also try to conserve um, the values of Shabbat, the values of keeping kosher and the values of the real precepts that have kept our people alive and sustained us spiritually and culturally and emotionally for so many years. Rabbi Rachel Kobrin from the Denver Synagogue wrote of Shalom. Her congregation, like so many across the country, will say the mourners' Kaddish at Shabbat services this weekend with the Pittsburgh victims on their minds. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The tax law passed last year created winners and losers, and accountants had to absorb a mountain of new information to properly advise clients. With a few months until the end of the year, they say there's still time for most taxpayers to make any needed changes. Here's CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. For Tricia O'Connor, the timing of the tax bill was awful. It was just days before the start of the new year, meaning she had clients pretty quickly wondering how those changes would affect them. They don't pass legislation and download it into me like I'm a cyborg. I have to learn it. O'Connor has been a CPA for decades in Denver. And she says one thing that struck her about the new tax law is how radically different every individual's situation is. There are few common denominators for particular groups of workers or businesses. The new law is complex. And O'Connor says many of her older CPA friends have just decided to quit. They decided that it wasn't worth it to learn the new tax code for somewhere between three and five years worth of practicing. That's part of the reason it's getting harder to find CPAs to prepare individual taxes outside of the big chains like H&R Block. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is the most significant rewrite of the tax code since the 1980s. It broadly lowered taxes on corporations and many individuals. But the bill was fast-tracked through Congress, and so the IRS has had the hard work of interpreting and filling in details. That makes advising clients a challenge. We are, what, 10 months in now? We're still learning about the Section 199A and how to put it into practice. 
She's referring there to the qualified business income deduction, which is essentially a 20% tax cut for some. The devil, of course, is in the details. It favors certain professions over others. Sorry, lawyers and accountants. Hooray, engineers and architects. But it's still not totally clear what counts as qualified income. And what if you have multiple businesses? Then the need for um, guidance is immense. That's Ed Caro with the American Institute of CPAs. He says when he worked preparing taxes, it took them years to figure out all the details of the 1980s tax bill. Carl agrees that many older CPAs are probably calling it quits rather than learn a brand new tax code, but he says that opens up a chance for others. Because it's new and there aren't noted experts yet, so there are huge opportunities. People probably think I'm crazy, but I think it's really fun. (laughs) Mary Gallagher is a Denver accountant who was able to take on new clients because an older CPA she knows retired after the new law passed. As she poured over the details of the new code, she noticed something. This could be bad for charities. The standard deduction is higher, which means many individuals will no longer benefit from itemizing deductions and therefore won't get a tax benefit for donating to charity. I hate to see the charities suffer, but I don't know how many people make charitable contributions because they're going to get a deduction and how many people just do it because they believe in the charity. So hopefully the charities won't be hurt as much. So charities may get more money one year and none the next, depending on changes to the individual's income and whether they itemize. There's one other issue keeping accountants up at night. Many taxpayers could end up owing the IRS more money in April than they realize. We have six months before your tax bill is due. You've got six months to be made aware of the fact you might have a tax bill coming. Again, Trisha O'Connor. She says because of changes to withholding tables, many people are seeing the tax cut and a small increase in each paycheck. That means they may end up owing or not getting as big a refund as usual. You're expecting a refund because in your mind, this tax legislation has been sold that it's tax savings. What you didn't connect with was you've been getting it all year long. You didn't pay attention to the fact that your net check was just higher. And now we're going to hand you a tax bill and everyone's going to be surprised. She's done the math and many of her clients will probably end up owing more than they realized. And for some big clients, that's tens of thousands of dollars more. Either way, O'Connor says there's still time to prepare yourself, even if the CPAs may not have all the answers right now. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Four survivors of the Columbine High School attack retraced their steps that day in a new film. It's crazy to think back on, you know, just this is where it all happened for me. I mean, this was, this was my Columbine, you know, and every, every single student had their own Columbine. I haven't been in this room. I haven't told my story actually walking through it ever. So that brings a whole new element to it. The voices of Gus D'Arthene and Jamie Norden in the documentary We Are Columbine, which makes its Colorado debut this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. It's been nearly 20 years since the shootings. Laura Farber was a freshman at Columbine then, and she is the filmmaker. I just wanted to follow up on a really personal story that I felt was told by other people, everyone except for us. You know, and it's also, it's a partial love letter to the Columbine community and a way to hopefully help, at the time, what I thought would be future survivors, not knowing that uh, mass shootings were going to explode the way they have. It's interesting that you were a freshman at Columbine, as are the people in the film, right? Correct. Yeah. You still had three years ahead of you after the shooting. Yeah, and um, it was scary, 
but it was also it was nice to be around the people that we were with on that day for the next three years. I think we had a nice support system in place there. In the beginning of the film, English teacher Kiki Leba says to you off camera that he thinks this is your way to sort through that day. Oh, yeah. I mean, he hit the nail on the head, and I I didn't know it at the time, but I just sort of nodded my head and said, yeah, that's that sounds good. Um, but little did I know that, you know, just being back in the school was going to be um, difficult. I thought I was just coming to do my job. You know, to, to film. To film, to direct, to interview, to, you know, support the people that were courageous enough to come forward and, and speak about their experience on that day. How quickly after the shooting were you back in the building? After the shooting, we went back to school officially in the fall the following year. And so we finished out the school year at Chatfield High School. That's right. You know, it was a crime scene for the entire summer. Um, You know, we were allowed to go back and pick up backpacks or I think they allowed us to come back and pick up some stuff. I want to ask you more about walking through the building more recently. But there's a moment in the film I just can't get out of my head. I think it demonstrates the innocence that you and your fellow students had back then. This is Amy Staley talking about her reaction when the attack started. I don't think anyone, like, really understood exactly what was happening. Like, kind of like, whoa, what the f***? And are we going to be... I almost want to say, like, in trouble or something for, like, all of us just running. Like, are we making a big deal out of nothing? The notion that, oh, my gosh, if I leave... The school building, am I going to get in trouble? There was was just something so innocent about that. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of us felt that way, that, you know, we have tests to prepare for, we had assignments due, and, you know, again, nothing like this, at least in our world, had ever happened before. So you don't know how you're going to react in these situations. You're still a freshman. It's like, you know, just trying to get from point A to point B, get good grades, you know, or not. (laughs) <laughs> or not. Yeah, or not. <laughs> I won't ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that scene uh, with Amy, I, I think she's in the cafeteria area. And at one point, gosh, you you have her get under the table as she did that day. And you frame the shot that way. It's really powerful. Yeah. And it was powerful for me, too, because I was with Amy on that day. And, you know, a little backstory I um I didn't realize I was with her until we were filming our interview together for the first time I didn't remember that part I felt awful um but she Amy reminded me that that we were together at the same table oh my goodness that had been the first time you were there since what graduation since graduation in 2002 I mean it's not unusual for someone not to visit their high school you know after graduation but do you think you were purposely staying away from it probably I mean you know, I moved out of state um, right after graduation and then, you know, didn't really come back at all to visit until I started working on the film. And I didn't know how everyone was doing. And I was I was wondering, how are we all healing? What are we going through? And what did you find? I mean, what is the effect today? Well, the effect is it's crazy. I think, um, you know, events in your life, especially traumatic events, can sort of guide you to what, you know, where you're going to go in life, um, especially with the participants in the film. I mean, Amy's a social worker and Jamie's a nurse and I'm making a film. Yeah. And what did you learn from making it? Oh, well, you know, I got to learn, you know, where Zach was and that it didn't really matter where you were in the school that day. 
the outcome is very different. The effect on you is very different. Um, Tell us about Zach and where he was. Zach Martin was in the drawing room and he, um, you know, he was near an exit. I was near an exit. Amy was near an exit. So you just, you kind of have this idea in your head that, you know, that there's these concentric circles of trauma that if you're further away that you're not as affected and that is not what we saw and that wasn't really the case even as adults. I wonder if that was just a misunderstanding that the rest of the world had. Oh, you were fine. You were near an exit. You weren't in the library? Yeah, no, it's really unfortunate because it makes your own personal um, healing difficult when you're trying to wrap your head around and, and digest how you're supposed to be feeling, you know, this supposed to be this. It's, it's whatever it is for you. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new documentary, We Are Columbine. It is made by a student who was a freshman at Columbine when the school was attacked. That's Laura Farber, and it follows some of her freshman classmates uh, as they walk back into the building, uh, really for the first time in a long time. There's a lot of focus in this film on the culture of Columbine and the sense of community at the school well before the shooting. Maybe talk briefly about the title, We Are Columbine. Well, that came from a chant that Columbine had. You know, the Columbine chant started before the shooting happened on the 20th. So that was something that we always did at assemblies, and it just it got the entire student body, you know, energized. Why do you feel it was important to show that kind of school pride? Well, I wanted people, I think I definitely wanted people to know that we were a close group, you know, from freshmen to seniors, and that we stick together. Um, you know, to me on the outside, I wasn't living in Colorado yeah. at the time of Columbine in the immediate aftermath. But there was this sense, I think, to the rest of the country that what had driven the shooters was, you know, this toxic culture of bullying and and the kind of jock culture and that, that Columbine might have been a nightmarish place to go to school. And this film portrays something different from that image. Yeah, it was. And that was unfortunate. You know, it always right after these school shootings, there seems to be this pattern of, um, you know, this question of why did it happen? And then I just I don't know if you can answer that question right away. And that's a rumor that I kind of wanted to squash. I would not say that there was wasn't any bullying. I don't I know that there's bullying everywhere and in a lot of high schools. But I just think as a community, we weren't ready for that. For that accusation? Yeah. You don't think it rings true? Right. There are a lot of uh, lovely moments in the film as well that just show life today for these four classmates. I mean, just things like cooking dinner with their significant others. There's Gus's music career. Have you all kept in touch? Well, of course, because of the film, I, you know, I, I'm always reaching out to them for stuff. Um, but we definitely have. And I think this particularly this festival, this Denver Film Festival, will be the first time that we're all going to actually be together. And I, I think it's really important. And I'm just, I'm really looking forward to getting everyone together. I think it's going to be really special. You tell stories in this film, We Are Columbine, like the food fight. So this is a few years after the attack. Uh, the food fight was supposed to be a senior prank for your class, the class of 2002. 
but it ended with an arrest and a school-wide protest. You would have thought we had pitchforks and torches the way we were yelling. Some of those kids turned to me and like, we, you know, this is effing this and this is effing that. And I was just like, wow, where is this coming from? We're, we didn't, the point wasn't to go and throw food at each other. The class of 2002, I think justifiably so, felt that they had to live under all these rules and regulations for three years, that they couldn't have fun. And this was their way, and it was a harmless prank. You know, later it made sense. I could look back and go, yeah, no wonder they were so angry. The food fight was really uh, our way of just trying to have a senior prank, literally trying to have some fun. I mean, every class did it before us. It was really just our way to have a good time um, and to act like kids, I guess. And it was interpreted as a potential threat. Oh, of course, yeah. Everything was um, during those three, three years. What do you mean everything was? Everything, you, you know, we just, we just felt like we were scrutinized having been through what we had gone through. They're just looking at you differently. You know, the world is looking at you differently. How are you acting? And it was an innocent food fight that turned into something um, really unfortunate with, with an arrest. This is so interesting. Did you feel like you were in a fishbowl for those four years at Columbine? Yes, definitely. We were... Um, I know a lot of us were hesitant to wear some of our Columbine stuff, you know, with pride. You want to and you have to sometimes for sports and whatnot. But it was definitely something we were aware of and maybe second-guessed putting on because you just don't want the – we didn't want the attention. That's interesting. Like you're wearing your Columbine apparel and maybe you're at the grocery store and then someone comes up to you. Yeah, we, that, um, that was something I avoided often. You just didn't want to talk about it. You've alluded to the extra layers of meaning showing this film in Colorado. Do you have concerns about how it will be received and and even if you might be accused of being exploitive? Yeah, I, um, I'm definitely super excited to have the film home back in Colorado where it's supposed to be and, and who, you know, who I made the film for. Um, but also, yeah, I'm definitely nervous. I think anytime you show your work, and up to this point it's pretty much my life's work, to an audience, it's always a little nerve-wracking. Um, but I, I truly, I just want, you know, anyone that is familiar with Columbine or or knows Columbine or went to Columbine that I, I really tried my best to stay true, um, you know, to what we remember and, and what we experienced that day. And I feel like as a survivor um, and an alumni, I, I kind of knew what not to show, what not to do. I don't think that, you know, showing the stuff that anyone on YouTube can go and research um, would be helpful or beneficial. So my rule was if there's footage from the actual 20th, from the day of, outside of the school, um, I actually blurred the people's faces for privacy. And then also I promised I wouldn't show any CCTV footage from inside the school. Thank you for being with us, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Laura Farber directed the new film We Are Columbine. It makes its Colorado debut this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. Farber was a freshman at Columbine when the shooting took place almost 20 years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado has some of the highest voter turnout in the country, and still 30% of eligible adults sat out the last election. 
Why? The best answers probably come from non-voters themselves. I don't drive my car when it's broken. And the system's broken. People need to acknowledge that. I'm Sam Brash, host of our election podcast, Purplish. This week, what really gets non-voters to vote? Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The career of Jose Antonio Vargas is a storybook success in many ways. He came to the U.S. as a child, landed a reporting job at The Washington Post, and eventually shared a Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the Virginia Tech shooting. I've written like maybe 3,000 news articles since I was a kid. Then he made a surprising admission that he is in the U.S. illegally and could be arrested and deported at any time. Well, CPR's Brad Turner is here to share this story. And uh, Brad, with the so-called caravan coming to the border and now questions around birthright citizenship, it's clear the immigration debate in the U.S. is far from settled. I understand Vargas says his story shows the issue isn't black and white, though. Right. He didn't even know he was here in the country illegally for years. He found himself trapped, faced with having to lie and struggling to find a way to become a citizen. And he's now written a book called Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. This book was like, it was like an emotional root canal. He shared a story at the Aspen Ideas Festival. I was there over the summer and wanted to share it with you. I've been in this country since I was 12. When I was sent here by my mom from the Philippines, living with my grandparents, so this is like the outline, then found that I was undocumented when I was 16, when I went to the DMV. You know, this was like 1997 in California, like in the Prop 187 era, right? So I thought I was the only non-Mexican undocumented person. That's, that's what the media said, right? This is about Mexicans. It's not about Asian people. But since I was 16, I didn't, I didn't think I was allowed to feel. <laughs> I just thought... You just try to kind of pass and lie your way through the passing, and then you hide. So actually, the book, as you'll see, is those are the three kind of big outlines, right? Lying, passing, hiding. That's the experience of, I think, every undocumented person in this country. Even more, I think, undocumented black, undocumented white, undocumented Asian immigrants that are not a part of the conversation, Right? I can count how many undocumented white people I meet at at Starbucks (laughs) who are just like, hey, I'm here without papers too, but I'm white, so I pass. And my accent is English or French or German, and people think it's a good accent versus a Spanish, Mandarin, Korean accent. Vargas still remembers that trip to the DMV vividly. He researched how to get a driver's license, then grabbed his green card and student ID. So I went to the DMV on my bike, listening to Alanis Morissette and Voice to Men on my Walkman. You know, I wasn't paying attention, really. So when the woman called me up on the booth, I gave her my green card, and then I gave her my Mountain View High School student ID. And she flipped it around twice, and she looked at me, and she was like, this is fake, the green card. My first instinct was she was lying. And my second instinct was, I'm not Mexican. I actually said, I'm not Mexican to her. I mean, that's how much I had internalized that this was a Mexican thing. That's what the newspaper said. That's what the radio said. That's what the news said, right? And then she was like, I don't care what you are. (laughs) This is fake. Don't come back here again. So then I 
rode my bike back home, and then my grandfather was a security guard, and so he always worked the night shift, so he was always home during the day. And so that's when I confronted him, and that's when all the lies kind of became clear that I was smuggled here, that he had paid somebody $4,500 to smuggle me, that the uncle that I thought was my uncle that brought me through the airport was actually a smuggler, um, and that I thought my mom was going to follow. She's not going to follow because she can't. And then my grandfather said the plan was marry a woman and poof, you'd become an American. Alexander Bullock from The Proposal or something, right? But Vargas says that plan was never in the cards. He's gay, so he's not going to marry a woman for a green card. He wasn't sure how to navigate life after that revelation at the DMV. But some people stepped up to help. He says people who help undocumented immigrants make up a kind of 21st century underground railroad. He says high school teachers helped him find a way to attend college. That led to a string of jobs, which meant he had to lie to get work. He spelled out how he did it in his book. So my first job out of high school was at the San Francisco Chronicle as a copy boy, like delivering faxes and mail. And so that was the first time I ever like met an employment form. So on the form, it clearly states there are boxes where you have to check U.S. citizen, resident alien. And I couldn't check resident alien because my green card is fake. So, so I had a conversation with myself, 20-minute conversation probably with myself on the third floor of the Chronicle building in San Francisco. Just like when I check the citizen box and it says perjury, what am I really signing up for? But I did, <laughs> which I was not legally supposed to do. And I kept doing it. So the Chronicle, the Philadelphia Daily News, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, the New York, like every single job that I had, a full-time job, I had to sign this form. And I had to have a conversation with myself about what does being a citizen mean? Vargas found himself with a job at the Washington Post not long after finishing college. He covered events at the White House and candidates like Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton and wondered how no one figured out he had a fake Social Security number. So I was so paranoid that I told this guy, Peter Pearl, who was one of the editors there, and I told him, I outed myself to him and told him fake papers, fake everything, the driver's license I wasn't supposed to have. And then to my surprise, he was like, um, <laughs> the first thing he said, you make so much more sense now. <laughs> Because I guess I'm like walking around like I had the whole world in my back. The second thing he said, which surprises me to this day, don't tell anybody else. Um, Actually, the Washington Post, I don't know. To to this day, I haven't asked Peter exactly what the punishment was. But the Washington Post basically said in a statement that, you know, he should not have done what he did, that it was wrong. But then I think about, again, like how many other people do that every day, right? Uh, In any profession, Right? They're like Peter Pearls all around this country making that split-second decision. And again, they're not a part of the conversation. Politics have failed them. Policies have failed them. Right? Like They're the ones making these split-second decisions about who gets to stay, who's welcome. Vargas left the Washington Post and has spoken openly about his status. He runs a nonprofit called Define American that tries to foster conversations around immigration. He has 15 employees there and says he gives them health benefits he can't collect himself as a non-citizen. And he knows he could be deported at any time. In fact, he's been arrested before. I I was arrested, I wrote about this in the book, I got arrested four summers ago in Texas, the same place where the kids are being arrested now. 
So after I was um, detained for eight hours, they gave me um, my first American papers, which was actually a warrant. So it's called, it's called a notice to appear. So if they decide to call me into a judge, then they can make a decision whether or not to deport me. So the Trump administration did not do that. I cannot have any expectations at all about what... I'm basically preparing for the worst, right? Because, look, like, part of the privilege of doing this work is I have to be really out there. So if he says, come get him, I'm packed. <laughs> right? Like, I haven't seen my mom for 25 years, so that would be a nice reunion to see her in the Philippines. Um, yeah. Vargas knows a lot of people don't think he should be allowed to stay in the U.S., He's covered Trump rallies where immigration is a talking point. But he says he contributes to our society. He pays taxes. And he thinks most Americans don't understand how murky, even non-existent, the path to citizenship can be. For me, though, one of the biggest struggles in this issue as a journalist who happens to be undocumented is how poorly most Americans understand what this issue is. Like, like the question about why don't you wait in the back of a line when the reality is there's actually no process. There's no line for someone like me to get in the back of. If you told me that I should wait 20 years to become a U.S. citizen, okay. But I'm always amazed how people don't understand that there's no process for us to legalize our way. So my mom can't even get a tourist visa to come visit here because she doesn't own property and she's not a college graduate. So what does that tell you about race and class? So... Give us a process. Give us a line. I'd be more than happy. I have to tell you, though, um, when people say to people like us that we should earn our citizenship, I don't know what else you need us to do. You're detaining us with our own tax dollars, by the way. You're detaining and deporting us with our own tax dollars. You call us a bunch of illegals like we're like insects off your backs. You couldn't survive without us, right? Your economies would collapse. The economy of Texas, just the contractor industry, the agricultural industry will collapse, right? And then you tell us that we should earn this. So very politely, I am just really curious how all of you have earned your American citizenship. What are you doing? Just curious. Because for me, becoming a citizen means knowing that the world doesn't revolve around me. So when I think of citizenship, I think of knowing that I only occupy one space and I'm surrounded by all of these people. And that kind of hyper-awareness to me is something that at a time like this to me is important. Meanwhile, Vargas says millions of undocumented immigrants around the U.S. live in uncertainty. He says they're often unable to visit their families in person. He hasn't seen his mother in 25 years, except on Skype. And he says the mental and emotional effects of U.S. immigration policy need to be a part of the political conversation. If you want to like, give yourself a jolt sometimes, there are people who literally Skype their relatives' funerals. An immigrant have parents dying somewhere and they're Skyping the whole funeral. That's what immigration is. Right? And I think, again, we don't talk about it from this experiential way. And I think if we're really going to solve this issue beyond what immigration reform is, I'm an undocumented, I couldn't really tell you what immigration reform is, right? But if we're going to solve it, I think understanding what the human toll of this, I think for me, has to be at the forefront of that.
Jose Antonio Vargas spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival about his book Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Find more Aspen Ideas Festival coverage and video of the complete talk later today at CPR.org. The Democratic and Republican candidates vying to be Colorado's next attorney general agree on something. They both oppose President Trump's push to get rid of birthright citizenship. CPR's Allison Sherry reports. Republican George Brockler says he'd have to see the wording of any executive order before knowing exactly what he would do, but he would happily go to court to defend Coloradans if he felt the president was violating the Constitution. And because I do think it implicates not just the separation of powers, but a constitutional right, I would defend the Constitution on that issue. Brockler compares the president's proposal to another polarizing constitutional amendment that could be subject to political whims, the Second Amendment. But they say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass an executive order that dictates what militia means. I just don't think you open up that Pandora's box. And if you have a president, any president, I just think you got to stand up and protect the Constitution. Democratic AG candidate Phil Weiser says he too would defend Coloradans, no matter where their parents were born. The idea that the president could override our Constitution with an executive order is appalling and is a flagrant assault on the rule of law. As Colorado's attorney general, I'll defend the rights of everyone, and that includes people born to immigrants. Weiser also says opposition to this should be nonpartisan. All 50 state AGs should be taking this seriously, because once you start saying, I'm not going to enforce, I'm going to override constitutional protections, what's next? The First Amendment, if you can just pick and choose which constitutional provisions you get to override as president, we've lost our constitutional democracy. That's what's at stake. GOP gubernatorial candidate Walker Stapleton refused to comment to CPR about his views on President Trump's 14th Amendment proposal. Democrat Jared Polis vowed to stand up to Trump to protect Coloradans. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. And let's look briefly at the data. The Pew Research Center finds that the number of babies in the U.S. born to unauthorized immigrant parents has fallen by 36 percent since 2007. Denver is getting a visit from the Smithsonian, specifically the Museum of African-American History and Culture, Curators and archivists are in town to help people digitize old family photos, video. Sherilyn Jackson of Boulder says her family goes back nine generations in the U.S. I'm bringing uh, lots of photos. My grandfather in his military uniform looking all just dark and dapper. I got this really beautiful picture of my grandmother. It's like a portrait of her, and she's dressed to the hilt. These things aren't very valuable to anybody, but they are extremely valuable to me. I hope to be able to share this event with as many of the youth coming up in my family as possible. So uh, even these, who knows, you know, millenniums from now, this will still be there. Say, yes, we were here. Well, let's learn more about this project. Doretha Williams is with the Robert F. Smith Fund, which supports the project, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Why is preserving culture in this way, family by family, important? Oh, for so many reasons. Um, One, I think, of the most obvious reasons is to capture this material before it deteriorates anymore. Um, You know, we have 
audiovisual um, equipment that's not around, you uh-huh. know, to play this information, to record this information. Photos are are being lost uh, to issues of weather and, and poor storage. So we definitely have to capture this information just for its survival's sake, you know, to digitize this. But secondly, and even more importantly, is to capture the stories and the narratives that uh, that we get a chance to get to know through these projects, right? So we're out here in the West. And me being a Kansan, I'm a Topeka girl, um, really always wanting to learn more about Blacks in the West, you know, this African-American migration pattern to the West in the mid to late 19th century and how we all got out here, you know. So um, making sure we preserve and make this material accessible. Everyone doesn't know that uh, that type of migration patterns of African-Americans. And as Sherilyn was talking about, you know, we, we were here. What was going on here? Our families developed the businesses, the schools. Uh, so all of that material needs to be preserved so that People know what happened and that it plays a larger part in our American story. I know that you've just uh, recently arrived in Denver, but maybe tell us about some of the surprising materials that have showed up already on this sort of tour of the United States. Yes. Well, the first thing we did was was in Baltimore, and that was a wonderful project where we got to know uh, individuals in the community and uh, getting their material digitized and some of the wonderful stories of um, people... There's a one young woman brought her information from her late husband. He was a he was an artist and he had painted many murals in Baltimore. But many of those buildings had been demolished, oh. and so she had the collection that showed um, her husband's just incredible talent um, that didn't exist anymore. So already being here, we've had wonderful experiences with people coming in. Sherilyn, of course, I just met a, uh, an, a man, Mr. Springs, who came in and talked about the multiple generations of his family who had been here uh, living and thriving in Denver. And then we found out that we both have family that came through Kansas. We are both oh. exodusters, um, those African-Americans who ventured west in the uh, 1879, 1878 time period. So just just having these conversations and getting to know one another and seeing where these connections come together, um, just as great uh, as an objective uh, as actually digitizing the material. Exodusters, that's a term uh, you've just introduced me to. <laughs> so the, the, the inherent in that word is exodus, of yes, course, exodus, so a, a yes. leaving, I suppose, yes, of the yes. East. And the dust, was that just a, a reference to the dust bowl or the conditions here? Uh, the conditions, it was, it, was a, it was a title given to many African-Americans who left um, my fam- my mother's family left parts of Tennessee, but they also left parts of Tennessee, Louisiana, and and Mississippi uh, to find their way west. Um, and the story, most uh, people who know the story know of, of Pap Singleton leaving leaving Tennessee. But there's this this movement um, that course of corresponds to the the migration of of, of lots of um, other. Uh, groups uh, to the West, you know, and looking at homesteading and and places where land would be available to find true freedom mm. uh, from the end of Reconstruction, 1877, um, out of the South. Where can we find free land? Where can we find a free life for Black people? And so, one of those paths, uh, there were many. One of uh, one path was the trip west, the movement no. west. Is there something particularly vulnerable about the photos, the video, the artifacts uh, that are documenting the African-American experience, do you think? 
do like as far as preservation is concerned? Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, um, we we see uh, in all families, you know, we, we sometimes are preserving in the incorrect way. Right. You know, tape on on uh, in in scrapbooks and things like that. So <laughs> that you know, would make a curator gasp. <laughs> yes. When, when people bring them, they go, oh, no. Um, so, you know, those things are we you know, we try to correct that as well. Um, uh, but but also, you know. The problem with not having these narratives exposed is you miss a whole segment of movement and development in this country of of different people. Um, and, you know, that's what we're missing today in this world is we don't know each other. We what are our stories? What are our histories? And um, the the understanding of what people went through uh, to make it out to the Western area and to thrive. You're also hosting events in collaboration with yes. the Black American West Museum in Denver and the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library yes. here. There's soul talk about oral histories. Uh, there's also one called Objects of Devotion about yes. African American religion and the preservation of sacred things. Uh, have been people been bringing items? Actual, people, photographs. We do. People do. You mean artifacts? Uh, yeah. Pe- we uh, we we actually do not want people to bring okay. their artifacts. Um, people do bring artifacts, okay. um, but we are not uh, doing three D digitizing, and we we're not you know doing things like um, we're not looking at. Uh, um, preserving those items. Yeah. Right. And to be clear, this is not going into the Smithsonian collection, although it is digitized for families. Yes. And they can upload it even through an app if they'd like and make yes. that public or private. Uh, we'll post information about how to sign up for all of this at our website, CPR.org. Doretha, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. She is Doretha Williams of the Robert F. Smith Fund. It's working with the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History to preserve family history. The team is in Denver through November 11th. And as I said, more information later today at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.